The reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. If you'll follow along as I read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the, chil for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. When they had gone, another angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Amen. Thanks, Todd. And may the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his word this morning. Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see you today. Happy New Year, everybody. Trust that uh, you had a wonderful Christmas celebration, warm, Christ-centered, I hope. Uh, as for us, we had our whole family together, and it was a great time. And uh, in case you were wondering, I'm happy to report that the turkey turned out really well. Even after seven consecutive days of turkey sandwiches, it was still pretty good. So there you go. Well, with the start of a brand new year, I am aware that some of you are in church this morning, uh, maybe for the first time ever, or uh, maybe coming back to church after a, an absence, and we just want you to know, welcome. We're, we are glad that you are here, and we welcome you. Um, I was thinking about that, I thought, well, there's several things about our church that maybe 
you would need to know if you're here for the first time or coming back. Um, first off, we're not the perfect church that you've been dreaming of being a part of. Sorry. We have no perfect people here. The leaders here are flawed and very human, and the members are flawed and very human. So keep, keep on your search for the perfect church, and if you ever find it, don't join it because you'll mess it up, all right? Second, uh, we're a non-denominational church, and that means that we're not officially affiliated with any particular denomination like Methodist or Presbyterian or Church of God or Episcopal or whatever. Uh, we do have a good and growing relationship with all of the denominational churches in our town here in Gahanna, and we're very grateful for that. We probably identify most closely with um, movements like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel, which are alliances of churches that are seeking to keep Jesus and his gospel front and center in the life of the church. We're an elder-governed church. That means that the human authority over this church lies in the hands of seven mature, godly Christian men. Uh, we believe this is the scriptural pattern for how a local church is to be governed, and I can attest that those men seek to carry out their oversight under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Um, I've served as, as lead pastor here for seven and a half years, but I want you to know that I am under their authority. They can evaluate me, they can rebuke me, they can correct me, they can fire me. Um, so I am under the authority of the elders here, and you should be very thankful for this elder team and feel very safe um, theologically because of their presence here. And we do have a senior pastor, his name is Jesus Christ. The Bible calls Jesus the chief shepherd. That means senior pastor. So we operate under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's his church. He purchased it for himself with his own blood. I wake up every morning and I say, Lord, it's your church today. Do with it what you want. Jesus can bless us. He can correct us. He can grow and expand us or he can prune us. He can do whatever he wants with us. He can pull our card anytime. It's his church. He purchased it. All of us, including our team of elders, are under the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, and he mediates that authority through his word. And speaking of his word, um, we're a Bible teaching church here at New Life. That means in all of our gatherings, worship gatherings and classes and groups, you can expect someone to open up a Bible or click on a Bible app and explain what the Bible says. We love the Bible. And we seek to understand God's word and live in submission to it here in this church. Also, as I mentioned, we're striving to be a gospel-driven church. And you say, well, what's that? Well, that's uh, a family of believers, a community of believers that's seeking to keep Jesus and his gospel front and center in the life of the church. Like Jesus center stage. That's what we believe about church. And so if you continue to attend here, you're going to hear a lot about Jesus Christ. Like a lot. Every week, he's the focal point. We're coming to believe that's where the power is in this gospel message of Jesus' perfect, obedient life, his substitutionary death for us, his resurrection from the dead victoriously, and our union with Jesus Christ when we believe that gospel message so that we participate in the benefits of all that he has done for us. That's the gospel. We think that both Christians and non-Christians alike need to hear the gospel message often often. Gospel is like dynamite, the Bible says. It's the power of God and the salvation. It has the power to mold and shape our identity as individuals, to form our community together as a church family, 
and also to define our mission to the world. And speaking of our mission to the world, we believe this year the Lord is leading us on a mission, as Pastor Claude mentioned, of loving our neighbors more often, in more ways, more sacrificially than ever before, and and all because of Christ's love for us. You know that verse that says, we love because he first loved us. And so this gospel has been churning up within us a lot of desire and passion that's seeking an outlet, and we believe that outlet is to love our neighbors as ourselves because of Christ and to love them until they ask why. And so I just wanted you to know all of that. If you're new to new life today, we, we welcome you here. We're, we're glad you're here. Our opening series this year is in the New Testament book of Matthew. I don't actually know how far we're going to get in this stretch. We're committed to going at least through the Sermon on the Mount together, and we'll just keep seeking the Lord and asking Him if He wants us to keep going with it. But uh, we have started. We're actually a couple of weeks into it. Because, as you probably know, the book of Matthew opens with the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that's what Christmas is all about. So we began this series the weekend before Christmas and then on into Christmas Eve. And now today we find ourselves in chapter 2, the portion that Todd read earlier for us. It's the story of the boy who was a king. And you can uh, pull the study guide out of your worship folder so you can uh, follow along with us here. The boy who was a king, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have much difficulty envisioning Jesus as a baby in a manger, and I don't have difficulty envisioning him as a grown man, but to think of Jesus as a toddler, it's like I have a hard time kind of grasping that and envisioning that, but that's the stage of life that we find him at in Matthew chapter 2. And what we find in this chapter are five events taken from the life of Jesus when he was just a little fella. Events that Matthew strings together in such a way as to showcase God's divine care and protection of this special little boy. Think about it. If the devil had been able to snuff out the life of Jesus when he was just a little toddler, then he wouldn't have been able to grow up and die on the cross for our sins, right? And so this story today is a vital, important link in God's gospel plan to reconcile people to himself, God sovereignly protecting his son. So think about these five events that we uh, heard Todd read just a moment ago. First, the visit from the wise men, right, the magi from the east, and then the scheme of Herod, his retaliation, his attempt to locate his new rival in town and eliminate him, Then there's the escape to Egypt, where Joseph was instructed to take his family in the night and whisk them away down south to Egypt. And then there was Herod's murderous rage, his subsequent massacre of the innocent children, the boys of Bethlehem, in an attempt to wipe out Jesus. And then the fifth event is the family's return, their safe return back to Israel, finally settling down in the little town of Nazareth. Now, the way I'm wired... If I don't restrain myself this morning, we could end up spending hours upon hours exploring in depth all the questions and things that arise from Matthew chapter 2, like who were these wise men, and how many were there, and how far did they travel, and what about this star that appeared, and was it a supernova or a convergence of planets, what was that all about? And why did they bring gifts, and what did these gifts mean, and why was Herod so rattled when they showed up, and on and on. Um, and then there's the Old Testament quotations. Did you, did you notice those that Matthew uh, gave us? We could spend a lot of time researching the meaning of, out of Egypt I've called my son, Rachel weeping for her children, 
he shall be called a Nazarene. Basically what we would see is that Jesus was coming to be the true and better Israel. To succeed where Israel had failed in God's plan. And so there's a lot that's so very intriguing in this chapter. And we'll touch on a few of these things. But for the sake of time, and so that you all won't get mad at me, being here at four, still at 4 o'clock this afternoon, we'll narrow the focus down a little bit. The main thing I believe Matthew wanted his readers to see was how different people reacted to this news that there was a new king in town. And he carefully shows us four different responses that people had to this little boy who was a king. And the first, of course, is the wise men, right? These wise men show up. And of course, there's that famous Christmas song about the wise men, right? And the way I learned it was, we three kings of Orient are trying to smoke a loaded cigar. It exploded and we floated high over yonder star. <laughs> my cousin, I think, taught me that and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind in 40 years. Anyway, these fellas come rolling into town after a long journey following a unique star that had provided divine guidance for them, led them to Jerusalem, called the wise men. Who exactly were these guys? And, and we have several sources of information about the wise men, okay? So tradition tells us that there were three of them, that they were kings, we three kings, they were named Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, and that they rode camels across the desert, and that they were present the night baby Jesus was born at the manger. Problem is, is none of those things are true. I hate to ruin your Christmas traditions, but um, we actually don't know how many wise men there were. Three gifts are mentioned, so it's been surmised that there were three wise men to correspond with the three gifts. Their names are unknown. They weren't really kings, and despite what you see in nativity scenes, they did not show up the night that Jesus was born. He wasn't in manger. It was probably a couple years later, and his family was living in a home in Bethlehem. Jesus was probably a toddler. And so while those traditions are well-meaning, they don't really square with reality. Sorry about that. But from this word magi, we, and of course we get our words magic and magician from that word, clues us in that it's a word associated with uh, sorcery and astrology and magic and the supernatural. But history tells us now that there was an entire class of people in ancient times over in the Middle East called the Magi, and they were around for about 600 years. They were a group of astrologer priests who specialized in stargazing. They blended science with superstition, and they combined astronomy with astrology. And they were considered the scholars or the wise men of their day. They were called upon to be advisors to the eastern kings, to interpret dreams, to give advice, that sort of thing, the magi. They're referred to in the Old Testament, mostly in the book of Daniel. And it's even stated there that Daniel was elevated, you might remember reading this, he was elevated to the position of being the boss over the magi, the wise men of his day. And some scholars believe that Daniel taught them the Jewish prophecies about a coming messiah. And so if that were true, then that would help explain why some of the Magi, 600 years later, set out on this trek to find the boy who was king. By New Testament times, the Magi were not only known as advisors to the kings of the East, but they helped to choose the kings of the East. They had become the official coronators 
of their empire. So they were not kings, they were king makers. And I think that's pretty significant when they showed up at Jesus' house. So here in Matthew 2, it tells us that when they show up in Jerusalem, they caused quite a stir. (laughs) They probably wore tall, cone-like hats like we associate with wizards in our day. They probably traveled with a large entourage with them, a bunch of people. And likely they rode in on the backs of beautiful, not camels, but Arabian horses after their long trek. And so they come into town, rolling in Jerusalem, asking a question, right? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? People who knew the Old Testament prophecies in the Bible pointed them to the little village of Bethlehem, which was really only six miles away, just down the road, south, coming out of Jerusalem. So they must have been pretty excited to receive that very specific guidance, and they probably got more excited when that miraculous bright star appeared once again in in the sky and went and parked itself right over the exact house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus lived. And so when they finally came in at the end of this long journey and see the little boy Jesus, Matthew tells us what? They bowed down and worshipped him and presented him with gifts, gifts fit for a king. And so we could say that their response to the boy king was one of costly worship. That's the blank there for number one, costly worship. They came bowing down and bearing gifts. Now, the ancient church fathers believed that those gifts had symbolic meaning, and I agree with them. I I think each of the gifts reveals an aspect of Jesus' identity that makes him worthy of worship, theirs and ours. And the first gift was what? Gold, gold. And of course, gold, a precious metal, has always been associated with royalty. So it almost sounds like these guys were coming to uh, crown a king. And of course, that's exactly what they were coming to do as they presented gold. And then frankincense, which is, as it sounds, a a kind of incense, and it was often used in worship services, Um, the incense arising to the one true God as a picture of worship. And then this third gift, myrrh, myrrh, which was kind of a curious gift for a little boy to be given. It was a perfume made from the sap of the Arabian balsa tree, and it had many uses. Some people would Uh, Mix it with aloes to create kind of a a fragrant lotion. Others would mix it with wine to create an anesthetic. But uh, you think, well, that's a strange gift to give to a two-year-old. But there was a third use of this that we find when we we research this. In ancient times, it was used as a kind of embalming fluid to prepare uh, a dead body for burial. Embalming fluid. So can you imagine being the parents of this little guy and these wild fellows from Arabia roll in to your house and give your son some embalming fluid? I mean, how would you respond to that? Can you imagine their baby book? Baby's birthplace, feeding trough in a stable, baby's first visitors, shepherds, and then later these wild-looking fellows from Arabia, baby's first presents, gold, incense, and embalming fluid. It kind of gets you right there, doesn't it? Why would you present a little boy with embalming fluid? Now again, we don't know if the Magi totally understood the greater meaning of their gifts, but some scholars believe that their predecessors, centuries before, had been taught by Daniel 
about Isaiah's prediction that Messiah would come and would have to die to pay for the sins of his people. That he would be the Lamb of God who would one day be killed to take away the sins of the world. That might explain this gift of myrrh. By the way, did you know that when Jesus' body was taken down from the cross three decades later after his crucifixion, that it was wrapped in strips of linen packed with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So it's not a stretch, I don't think, to view this gift of myrrh as foreshadowing Jesus' death as the suffering Savior. So Matthew portrays these Gentile kingmakers from the east as worshipers of Jesus. They brought gold to Jesus because he was a king. They brought incense to him because he is the eternal God. And they brought myrrh because he would become the suffering Savior, the embodiment of the gospel. Think about what it costs them to worship Jesus. Think about the 800-mile journey that they had made without a Honda or a Buick, but on the backs of horses, 800 miles. Would have taken them weeks, maybe months. Think about the, the generous amounts of time and energy and money and effort that it took to come and seek out the boy king. And then think about them bowing in humble submission to him and presenting costly gifts to this child. That is worship. They believe that Jesus, the boy who was king, deserved their worship. Now, it says they bow down and worship. Here's a little Greek lesson here. The word for worship in the Greek there is the word proskuneo. It's uh, two words. Pros means toward, kuneo means to kiss. The word for worship is to kiss toward. So now think about the parents there, Joseph and Mary, watching these men, grown men, coming in, kneeling down at the feet of their two-year-old, kissing his feet, expressing affection and emotion. Don't let somebody tell you that worship is just this mindless ritual thing that you do in church to please God. Worship not only affects the mind, enlightens the mind to the truth, not only affects the will so that you place your will under the Father's will, but it affects the heart, the emotions, the affections. It's an expression of love and adoration and devotion to your supreme treasure. And that's what these wise men were doing. They were worshiping their king. Well, that's how they responded. But other people had different reactions to the news that there was a new king in town. The local ruler, for example, in Jerusalem's name was King Herod. And he had kind of an animated response as well, didn't he? Disturbed. That's the word Matthew used. He was disturbed. And the people around him, it says, shared this Deep distress, that's the phrase there. King Herod's response was deep distress. Because these magi show up looking for a new Jewish king and Herod realized it wasn't him. You know, he's, he's thinking, where's the king of the Jews? Standing right in front of you. Hello, I'm the king of the Jews. I have no rivals here. What pretender has the gall to think he can usurp my authority in this land? And so he was feeling all threatened and worried, and he calls in all of his religious advisors and scholars and asks them if the Hebrew scriptures said anything about where this Messiah king would be born. 
of course, they told him yes, and they quoted Micah 5 and verse 2 from the Old Testament, which mentions the exact village, Bethlehem, where the promised Messiah would be born. And so Herod's mind starts spinning, then he makes a very strategic move. He calls for a meeting with the Magi, the wise men. He tells them about the prophecy in the village where they can find the little child. And of course, he has a secret agenda in all this, right? He's like, well, go find the child and then bring me word back that I may go and worship him too. But that wasn't what was in his heart. The scheme that was forming within him was to locate that new king and do what? Eliminate him before he could gain much of a following. following. And so I think, Matthew includes this because he wants us to realize it's important for us to understand that Jesus, in a sense, is a threat to all other kings. What do kings do? They rule and they reign, right? They exert their authority on their domain. Kingship means having the power and authority to rule. And Jesus came to earth and he comes to our hearts today as a king. He comes to rule. But so often when he arrives... There are other kings already in place, ruling, sitting on the thrones of our hearts. Other rulers that we've sworn allegiance to and have captured our hearts. And you can't have two kings. You can't have two masters. There's going to be a clash for supremacy. You can mark it down. Jesus didn't come to be one monarch among many. Hey, pick your king. He came to be king of kings, lord of lords. Pretender kings who currently reign in our hearts will get upset by that and they will feel threatened as they should. And I think Herod's reaction here was meant to show us how jealous other kings can get for control over our lives and how reluctant they will be to yield control to Christ, the one true king. They might even get violent like Herod did. Maybe even today. I know we have guests with us today. Maybe today the truth about you is that your life, your heart is governed by something or someone other than King Jesus. You're not yet a a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now you're hearing about this man who's presenting himself as the king of kings and coming to claim his rightful place as your king and sit on the throne of your heart and whatever's currently sitting there is squirming a little bit. And most likely, the current ruler in your life is none other than you, self, right? The big self sitting on the throne. Our culture has told us this since we were we little ones. You're in charge of your life. You're in charge of your decisions, your choices. You're the boss of your life. You command your destiny, your future, your choices, your relationships. You sit on the throne of your life. That's what we've been told. But now Jesus comes into the orbit and says, actually, I'm the true king, not you. I made you. I redeemed you. Surrender to my kingship, and then you will really live. For the first time in your life, you will live because he's a king who came to bring life, right? That's Jesus Christ. But whatever's sitting on the throne when Jesus comes fears that. Gets rattled by that, is unsettled by that, and a battle ensues. Self-protection kicks in, and self screams out at the prospect of losing its precious control. 
feels kind of scary, really, to think about stepping down from the throne of your heart and yielding, surrendering that to Jesus Christ. Trust is involved. Trusting him. Fear is a very real and common reaction that people often have when King Jesus shows up and starts making his claim to the throne of their hearts. Distress, fear, and in that moment, people are faced with a very important decision, choice, that has huge ramifications. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. So that was Herod's response. Deep distress, because he perceived he now had a rival But then there's a third group of people that just briefly mentioned here in chapter 2, and they have a reaction too, and these are the Jewish religious leaders. Now, Matthew tells us that after hearing about the wise men's inquiry, that King Herod, very agitated, gathers together all the religious scholars who are around, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, Herod was not a Jew, and so his knowledge of the Jewish scriptures was very limited. So he calls in these religious scholars and asks them, where the Messiah was to be born. But what strikes me as odd is that the Jewish religious people, the Bible scholars of his day, didn't pursue this themselves. I mean, they were the ones in possession of all the promises about Messiah, right? The Jews had that. They were the Jews, for crying out loud, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the recipients of God's holy law and all the promises about Messiah and, and the Savior King were given to them. But do we see them getting all excited about the fact that these wise men had rolled into town and seen a star and the baby had been born? Do we see them hopping into their chariots and hightailing it down the road for Bethlehem? Do we see them begging Herod, let us go too, let us go too? Do we see that? Now what do we see in them? Let's call it apathetic indifference. That was their response. Apathetic indifference. Apathy. Now, I thought of this when I was, uh, I was watching the news on the last day of the year, December 31st, and at the end of the news report, they said, hey, there's an annual survey that's given every year of the most annoying words in the English-American vocabulary. You, any of you see this? It's just kind of funny. And it said, you know, coming in at number four, I think was the word like, yeah, annoying, like annoying, right? And number three, I think, was the word totally, like totally. And number two was the phrase, you know, like totally, you know? And coming in at number one for like the fourth or fifth consecutive year, the most annoying word in the English language was the word whatever, like totally, you know, whatever, whatever, and I I heard that, and I thought of these guys, because that was basically their attitude, right? The king is born, oh, whatever, like totally, you know, whatever, but he's right down the road, like six miles down the road, oh, I'm busy, you know, I'm doing my nails today, or it's my day to wash my hair, I got stuff going on, whatever, really? That was basically the response of the Jewish leaders to the news that the highly anticipated, long-awaited son of David, the promised Messiah King himself, was actually living with his family six miles down the road. Whatever. There is so much irony here, it's hard to fathom. Think about this. 
pagan astrologers living 800 miles away traveled many weeks over treacherous terrain to come and pay tribute to Jesus, while religious priests who lived just up the road totally ignored him. Gentiles who were outside of God's covenant with his people gave Jesus a better reception than God's own chosen special people did. People without the Holy Scriptures had a better grasp of who this child was than people who studied and memorized the Bible every day. That's frightening to me and a little bit unsettling. Because I think about people like myself and like many of you who grew up in church, went to Sunday school every week, went to Awana, memorized scripture, went to vacation Bible school, who find in their heart a whatever attitude about Jesus Christ. Isn't that kind of frightening? And you know what? People who are freshly saved out of the world and out of sin, they don't get you. They're like, whatever, are you kidding me? Jesus Christ saved me from sin and death and hell and Satan. He is awesome. And you're like, whatever? Are you even saved? What's wrong with you? They don't get apathetic indifference towards Jesus Christ. Because they're like, I'm all in, you know? Jesus is, he's everything. And I worry about people like me. And us, who grew up in church, and it gets so familiar, and we've heard it every week, and it's like Jesus died on the cross for our sins, whatever. I think there's a strong message here for those of us who grew up in church. Let Jesus awaken you once again to his beauty, and his majesty, and his grace, and mercy, and love, and holiness, and his fierce jealousy for the hearts of his people. Man, if you've got a whatever attitude towards Jesus, you need to pray that God would have mercy on your soul and give you a fresh revelation of who Jesus Christ is. You know what? Worship is a response to your view of Jesus. That's what worship is. And if you have a puny response, that tells you you've got a puny view of Jesus. And you need a brand new, fresh revelation. You need the, the scales to fall from your eyes so you see Jesus Christ for who he really is. And when that happens, then you'll be all in too. Again, all in with Jesus. Well, these were the different responses to the news that a new king had arrived, coming to claim his rightful place as the shepherd ruler of the universe. For the wise men, their response was worship, wasn't it? Humble, devotion, humility, submission, generosity. For Herod, he was threatened distressed, fearful, scheming, angry, enraged. And for the Jewish leaders, they were apathetic, indifferent, distracted, self-absorbed, whatever. There's one more response to Jesus that's interwoven in this story in chapter 2, and it's the response of God the Father. The Father's response to what was going on down on the earth. And we could call that faithful protection. Faithful protection. Protection. I think Matthew wants us to see that through all the events in the childhood of Jesus, God the Father was actively at work to protect his son and preserve his kingship. You see, when the well-being of his son was in jeopardy, the father moved into action. By the way, there have always been deranged maniacs 
like King Herod, who will stop at nothing, even killing innocent children, to achieve their twisted, warped objectives. I think right now in our own, own culture, we're very aware of this, aren't we? I mean, we're all on heightened alert, and I don't think that's a bad thing. We're becoming more aware that little children are fairly helpless to defend themselves against evil-minded adults who seek to use them for their own benefit or even eliminate them out of, out of rage. I think it's a healthy, heightened awareness that's happening in our country. I, we all need to do all that we can to keep our children safe. Agreed? Well, the same was true for the little child Jesus. Evil men knew what he represented, felt threatened by him, and they believed they held the power to destroy his little life. But what Matthew shows us is God's sovereign protection over his son. The providence of God actively working to safeguard the child king from evil men. Thank God for that. You see how the, how the Lord did that? First, he prevented Herod from knowing Jesus' whereabouts by warning the Magi in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. Don't report back to him where the child is. Go home a different way. God protecting his son. Then God protected Jesus from slaughter at the hands of Herod by providing an escape plan to Joseph in the middle of the night in a dream, right? Get up, Joseph, now. Get Mary. Get Jesus. Take off. Head down to Egypt. And all those gifts from the wise men, no doubt, funded that trip and their stay there. Another provision by God the Father. And then God protected Jesus again when they came back to Israel by warning Joseph, steer clear of Jerusalem. Herod's son, Archelaus, he's cut out of the same cloth. He's a murderous, bloodthirsty guy. Go to Nazareth. Set up shop there. Matthew wants us to see that God the Father was intimately involved in the life of his son, protecting him, providing for him, preserving him because of his deep love for his son. I just want to remind you how much the Father loves his son. And you know what? If through belief in the gospel you're in Christ, you're loved that way. It's a beautiful thing. Well, those were the reactions. Those were the responses of people to the news of the, the arrival of the child king. And so I thought, well, what's in there for us? What's in there for us today? And I, I, um, so I have three takeaways I want to give you. There's three numbers on your outline there, right? Are they blank? That means I can say whatever I want, right? <laughs> so I'm going to give you three R words, and the first one is refresh. And what I mean by that is, you know, here we are at the front end of a brand new year, right? So 2012 is done. It's over. You can't do anything to change what happened. It's, it's on the books. You can just thank God for it, good or bad. But what we have in front of us now is a brand new year and a new opportunity. And it occurs to me when I thought about the wise men and what they did, that what a great time to refresh our commitment to worship Jesus Christ as our supreme treasure in all of life. And so that's what I've been doing, just getting up in the morning saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm not much, but, but I'm yours. All my sins, all my faults and flaws, everything that I am, everything that I have, all of my possessions, my time, my energy, my family, my money, it's yours. You're my Lord, Jesus. You are the one I worship. And I just, isn't it a great time at, at the beginning of a year to just refresh that commitment? In a few moments when we respond to the word, some of you might want to 
come because you feel prompted. Just come and kneel, kind of picturing those wise men kneeling. Come and kneel and just say, Jesus, here's my life. Here's my life, all of it. I'm yours. One of my favorite quotes on this uh, subject of worship is from Louis Giglio. And he says, you know what? He says, worship isn't just what Christians do. Worship is what people do. Everyone worships something or someone. We are all incurable worshipers. The question is, what occupies that supreme treasure space in your heart? What is it? And that leads me to the second R word, which is resolve. And this kind of goes piggyback on the first one. And, and it's resolve to displace all the rival kings that have set themselves up on the throne of your heart. Can you identify something that has usurped and taken the place that Jesus should have in your heart? A person, an ambition, a dream, a possession, a relationship? Not a bad thing. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. That's an idol. And wouldn't it be great if new life this year toppled all of our idols? <laughs> we just we resolved in our hearts to displace those rival kings. Now, some will go with a whimper, others will go kicking and screaming, because they're used to having the control of your heart. You know, I mean, you gave them that. And now you want to displace them so that Jesus Christ can be installed as king of your heart. That would please the Lord. The third one is probably the most important because it's the fuel to do the first two, and it's the word rest. Rest. You say, you mean like right now, fall asleep during your sermon? No, my sermon's almost done. Just hang in there for another minute. What I mean by rest is resting in the solid confidence that God has demonstrated that he is supremely committed to getting a shepherd, king, savior to you who will completely save you. He's committed to that. He showed it in Matthew 2. He is committed to, have, to you having Jesus Christ as your Savior King, and He's done all the work. And all you need to do is rest in that. That's how you become a Christian. By forsaking all of your good works in an attempt to earn God's favor and saying, it won't be good enough. I've got to rest in Jesus' performance for me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You earned my salvation and offer it to me as a gift. Rest in that. That's the fuel. That's the fuel for your life. That's the fuel for your devotion and worship of Christ. That's the fuel for displacing all the rival kings and idols in your heart is resting in what Christ has done for you. God's committed to it. Did you notice that? The work that he's begun in you, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a promise. All right, well, let's bow our heads together.